Hey everyone, I'm Alex Cantor. And I'm Lily Rosenthal. Welcome to our podcast, Hot Pastrami. We are coming to you from our favorite booth at Cantor's Deli here in LA. We're going to invite some of our friends to join us for a chat over some matzo ball soup and pastrami sandwiches. So join us for new episodes of Hot Pastrami every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon. Bye. Welcome to the Healing Herb Podcast. This is your grief expert and friend, Ashley Lemieux. I'm not even going to lie right now. I have been so nervously excited for today's episode because we are talking about a topic that I have never publicly talked about that I didn't really grow up talking about, that I didn't have the language for. My heart is actually pounding right now because I feel like I'm blushing about it already. Because today we are talking about intimacy and specifically intimacy during grief and how it changes things. Intimacy after miscarriage or infertility. And I just feel like this conversation is so important. It's not something that's being had publicly. And I wanted to have someone here with me that we could talk about things together on so that I wasn't trying to fumble over my words doing this alone, but also to have someone here who has both personal and professional experience in a topic that is affecting so many women. And if you're listening to this today and you're feeling maybe a little shy about it or you're feeling maybe shame even around it, I want you to know that there are so many women in your shoes who are struggling with having sex or intimacy after loss and in their acute stages of grief. It is so hard. We are not given the tools or the language or the steps forward on how to move forward through this with our partners. And today we're going to talk about some stuff that might feel uncomfortable, but that also I just know is going to be so healing and so helpful so that we can move forward. So today we have Jamie Castillo with us, who is a licensed clinical social worker, and she's the owner of Find Your Shine Therapy in Tempe, Arizona. At her practice, they treat trauma and anxiety in people across the age span, and she's also the author of What Happened to Make You Anxious. Jamie, thanks for hanging out in my car with me today to talk about sex. (laughs) (laughs) Where else would we be doing it in the the car? It's the best place to have this conversation. It really is the best place. We actually were just talking before this, you guys, because so many of you have also been asking me, why are you recording it in your car? And the car feels like this safe space where we can have girl chat. It's not a big production. We're just hanging out and it just feels really safe to talk about some of these harder things and uncomfortable topics like we're going to tackle today. But when I reached out to you and I just told you this, I have actually referred personal people in my life to Jamie's Find Your Shine therapy practice um, because I know that they do amazing work over there. And so as I was thinking about who I wanted to have this conversation with, even though I have never met you in person, I know that the work you guys do is so impactful. And so when I reached out, you also opened up to me that not only professionally is this a good topic for us to talk about together, 
but personally you have experience here mm -hmm. as well. Can you share with everyone listening a little bit about your personal experience and how you relate to them on this topic that we are going over today? Definitely. Yeah, I think that's so important. So yeah, I um, got married in 2017 and thought like, oh, I'll give it a year or two before we start trying to have kids, thinking that as soon as we were ready is when it would happen. And so my husband and I tried to conceive for about three years before we sought fertility treatment. We went to a fertility clinic here locally and were successful on the first try. We did an IUI procedure and fell pregnant and we were thrilled. And I had no experience with pregnancy prior and just sort of had this like, I guess naive now looking back, um, outlook that there would just be like in nine months I would just have a baby, right? Like that's what happens when you get pregnant. And so um, about a couple months in, I started bleeding and, and went to my clinic and found um, that I was miscarrying. And, you know, I was absolutely devastated, as many people are. Um, and so I sort of went through my own grief process at that point. But then, you know, we were really hopeful still because we were like, well, we fell pregnant pretty easily once we pursued fertility treatments. And so we had no reason to believe that we couldn't do it again. And then we went through years of additional IUI procedures, years of IVF, had more losses um, throughout that time period. And we were actually doing like our Hail Mary IVF cycle. Um, the last one we had decided I just couldn't put myself through another cycle before we were going to pursue surrogacy. So it was our last try. And uh, we got pregnant and um, during that cycle and I had a baby girl about a year ago. So the entire pregnancy, I was just riddled with panic and fear because of our past experience. It just felt like I had written off the possibility that this was in the cards for me um, as probably a protective thing. And so my mom actually reminded me recently she was like, Jamie, you were on your way to the hospital to be induced and told me you still weren't sure that you were going to come home with a baby. And, and that's just, that was my reality. I just couldn't let myself accept that it would happen because I'd been so devastated. So um, it's been a journey, that's to say the least. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I honor your experience so much. And it's one that I personally relate to a lot. And I feel like when you go through a pregnancy loss and then you go through more infertility treatments and then you have these questions of, am I going to be pregnant again? Or if I am pregnant, am I safe to be pregnant? Am I ever going to have my baby come? When you said that your mom reminded you that you weren't sure if your baby was still coming as you're going on your way to be induced, I felt the exact same way. I was like, until... I'm at home with this baby in my arms. None of this feels real. In fact, when I was in delivery and I was in labor, I kept asking my husband and the nurses and my doctor, am I, am I in a dream or is this real? Like my mind couldn't wrap its head around this new reality that it was safe for me to deliver a healthy baby and I was going to bring her home. During the process, two of us going through our fertility treatments, which never worked. I remember that we were doing our first IUI 
And it was still when there were a lot of COVID precautions happening. And so my husband wasn't in the room with me. I was in there by myself. And I I always add humor, dark humor to just kind of grief situations. It's one of my coping mechanisms. But I remember laying there starting to laugh out loud as they're starting the IUI procedure thinking in high school when you are warned about sex ed and how if you have sex, you're going to get pregnant. No one in their right minds ever <laughs> thinks that you're going to get pregnant with your husband in a totally different room, <laughs> not even in the same right. building as you. <laughs> and I just I just remembered laughing, being like, this just wasn't what I was prepared for or ever thought this was going to work. So which leads us into <laughs> intimacy as we are experiencing grief overall. And then I also want to dive into specifically intimacy after miscarriage or during infertility treatments. I'm going to preface this by saying my personal experience could be very different from yours and very different from everyone listening. But part of the process that was so hard for me is I felt so betrayed by my body. Mm -hmm. And then I felt like it was always being poked and prodded. And I felt so disconnected from it that it was almost like it didn't belong to me anymore. But it was this thing that I was trapped inside of that I didn't have control over. And it wasn't doing what it was, quote unquote, supposed to do. And I didn't feel safe in it Mm -hmm. anymore. So then for me, feeling safe with someone else (laughs) with my body just was really difficult for our relationship. It was difficult for me. If anyone in my family is listening right now, I keep thinking like, I hope they just turn this off because I don't want them (laughs) hearing about this. But I just know that this conversation is so important. So I would love to hear from you. What is it about grief overall that can make intimacy so hard when we are going through the acute stages of grief? Yeah. So first of all, I can 100% relate to what you just described. You're definitely not alone in that. I think, you know, if you've ever grieved, you know that it is like an intense longing experience, right? That you experience not only emotionally, but physically. Like you long for this experience or this person or this thing with your entire being. And I think in grief and and in traumatic grief especially, it can be really tough to even take care of your basic needs, right? So you might be just struggling to even like remember to eat or um, sleep or drink water or take a shower. And you're quite literally in survival mode a lot of the time. And so accessing like fun and spontaneity and pleasure and the things that we associate with intimacy, all of that comes secondary to basic needs. And so how can I access joy and pleasure and fun and like all of these things if I can't take a shower? Um, So that I think is one piece of it. But I also think what you described this like when your body is the trauma, Mm. Your body is now an unsafe place to be. Yes. And we cannot, you have to be in your body to feel desire and pleasure for sexual intimacy. And if you're detached from your body as a protective 
mechanism, like you just, you can't access that part of your brain that is required for these things. So I think it's really important to just normalize that, that it's not that something's wrong with you. <laughs> it's that your brain's doing what it needs to to protect itself in the midst of trauma and grief. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I always love having words that describe how I'm feeling and then let me know why I'm feeling a certain way so that I can first acknowledge it and then feel validated and then make a plan forward of, okay, now that I have this information, what do I do with it? And how you just phrased everything opens up just a new conversation of you're allowed to feel this way. Your your brain is doing what it is supposed to be doing to protect you, to keep you safe, to keep you going, to making sure your basic needs are met while you are in the midst of trauma. But when you were going through trauma or you were going through grief for the first time, you don't know that. You just know that you feel different and you feel bad and it's hard to get out of bed and everything about life just is new and not in a good way and it can feel really scary in your sense of safety and security and belonging and normalcy. It's all gone. And yes. so then how do you feel safe again to bring out that side of pleasure or fun or spontaneity that you lose in those acute stages of grief? I remember just overall in my life there's been a few times where the grief that I've been in has been so severe that it just, it changed my entire personality. Like mm -hmm. I used to be so funny. <laughs> I used to be the really fun friend. In college, I was the one who everyone called first to hang out with because I was a really good time. I am not that person anymore. And I think that that's almost its own type of grief. You grieve who you once were. And there's little pieces of her that have come back, but I'm just different now. Even as my healing journey has progressed, I'm just different. And I think that there's also beauty in that. But when you're in it and you feel foreign to yourself and your body feels foreign, it feels really scary to know what to do and what you can trust. So then I want to ask you the next question, which is how can miscarriage affect a person's desire for intimacy, both physically and emotionally? Is there a difference between grief in general and miscarriage or are they pretty similar? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it, it definitely depends on, you know, it's different for everyone. But when I think of grief, I think of like a longing mm -hmm. sensation that comes up emotionally and physically even. And when I think of miscarriage, um, in most cases, I think miscarriage and trauma are really kind of synonymous. And so I think when I think of miscarriage, I think of trauma, which is more of a this like profound sense of unsafety, right? The hallmark of trauma is unsafety. So, and it usually alters your sense of yourself or the world or other people. And so with miscarriage, I think in my experience, I'll speak for me, like it was very much your body caused this or your body's like lack of doing whatever most bodies do and like are, what it's supposed to do because your body's sort of like insufficient or bad in this way, like this bad thing happened. 
And you mentioned like being poked and prodded and all of that stuff. I think over time, you just sort of learn to disconnect from your body because your body is such a huge source of pain and inadequacy. I remember being told by my fertility doctor in one visit, he said, your endometrial lining is inadequate. Okay. I feel like there needs to be a dictionary <laughs> that doctors are not allowed to use when they are talking to women about their bodies and inadequate is one of those things. I'm yeah. so sorry. That that leaves such damaging beliefs about who you are that that breaks my heart. Yeah, it really that word stuck with me and I I really took that as like a belief that I internalized. Like I my body's adequate, I'm inadequate. And in order, that's so painful and overwhelming that you dissociate from your body. You detach yes. from can your you body. Sorry, I don't want to cut you off, but just very briefly, can you explain what to dissociate from your body means? Because there are probably a lot of people who are hearing this right now who don't know what it means, but might be able to be like, oh, that's what... I'm feeling that's the word for this feeling that I have. Yeah, definitely. So when you mentioned earlier when you were in the delivery room and asked if I am I in a dream, that's the first word that came to my mind was that's dissociation, right? So it's a protective thing that our brain does. When our brain determines that reality is too overwhelming, as a way to protect us from reality, it detaches and fragments in some way. And so sometimes People will talk about having like out-of-body experiences, just feeling like they don't recognize themselves in the mirror or like recognize themselves in their body or they're just disconnected from physical sensations. And um, it feels really, 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 really bad and really scary a lot of the time. But it really is just a protective mechanism that's totally normal um, that it, we just do it to survive a really overwhelming experience. So with miscarriage, I think of, you know, the body becoming unsafe. And then as a protective mechanism, we detach from our body to get away from the unsafety. And when we detach from our bodies, we detach from pleasure. <laughs> we detach from the bad stuff, but we also end up detaching from the good stuff too. And that can cause real difficulty accessing desire and pleasure for sex. That is such a simple yet profound way to explain everything in the way you just did. Thank you so much for giving us that language. So we're going through this grief experience that now also is a trauma experience from going through miscarriage or infant loss or stillbirth. And our partner emotionally is also going through it, but they're not going through it physically. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a big difference between men and women grieving specifically pregnancy loss, which men and women typically, right, they, we grieve different from each other anyway because of what society tells us, how we are biologically, not all the time, but mm -hmm. a lot of the time. But then you add in this component that they are grieving the same event, but through a completely different lens. And while you might be feeling trapped and unsafe in your body. They aren't physically having to heal from this mm -hmm. event. So I would love to hear from your perspective. If 
you can share some strategies for, for partners to be able to support each other emotionally and physically during this time. I had a really hard time even finding the words to how I was feeling and then being able to communicate that to my husband and then also the shame I felt around how I was feeling and the things that I, in my marriage too, this is coming from someone who is in a very safe marriage. We are in a very open, communicative marriage and I still felt so much shame and so much pain and so much confusion around how I felt in my body that it was very hard for me to communicate that to him. So because I just said a lot of words after I asked you the question, what are some strategies that for partners to be able to support each other physically and emotionally during this time? I think what you said is the the biggest the biggest thing in my mind for this, which is knowing that there's no right way to grieve. Knowing that every person grieves differently is a huge key piece of like normalizing what A, you're experiencing, but also what your partner might be experiencing. And I think some people might feel more of a desire to be intimate with their partners Mm -hmm. as a way to like foster connection and closeness whereas others might not want to be touched with a 10-foot pole right Mm -hmm. I was in the latter category (laughs) don't even blink at me I cannot I can't I can't I don't have capacity for anyone else in my orbit right now I don't have capacity for myself right exactly I remember this might be a little TMI but I remember being like fully in an intimate experience and halfway through being like it has to stop Mm -hmm. like I am not even in this room right Mm. now like I'm I I imagine myself being like glazed over just you know so detached and I think that that is another hard piece of it is I know my husband and I'm very lucky too to have a very supportive husband And he, but he would ask me like, what's wrong? Like, what do you need from me? And I would be like, your guess is as good as mine. I have no clue what I need. Like, I, I don't even know which way is up. How can I communicate what I need from you emotionally? (laughs) Um, Which can lead to a really isolating feeling for both you and your partner. Yes, I think. And some helplessness, too. Major helplessness. I I also want to point out that this is coming from someone who is a therapist. Like you understand other people's emotions and responses and you literally work to help them through that. And that's part of the complexity of trauma and grief is that when you are personally in it, it doesn't matter what you know. It is a totally unique experience. And the reason I wanted to say that is because I know that there's so many people listening who feel maybe bad about how they are handling it or they just feel really confused and maybe they think that it's just them. And I want to say that you are hearing from two people who are experts in grief and trauma and anxiety. It's been really hard for us also, even though we have the language for other people internalizing that. It's a whole new experience. But the part of grief and trauma that I also want to talk about is that while it is so painful and so disorienting when you are in it, there are also ways to move forward 
and to move forward together. Yes. What did those conversations start looking like between you and your husband after that moment where you were like, I don't know emotionally or anything of what I need. It's hard for me to communicate that with you. What steps did you then start taking to move forward together? Yeah. So I went to therapy, (laughs) which is a really, I think that can be a really important part of the healing and the reestablishing um, connection and trust and all of those things, both individually and as a couple. Like if you go to couples therapy, that can be really, really helpful. So therapy started to help me make sense of what I was feeling and then from there what I needed and then from there how to communicate that, right? So there's like steps mm-hmm. for sure. But I think um, one thing that I that really stuck with me that I like to talk about in my therapy practice is being able to say, so so knowing that you might grieve very differently from your partner, it's very easy to look at the way that they're grieving and feel really sort of like invalidated by it mm, or yes. confused by it. And so, you know, I, I actually listened to your former podcast with Mike about how he sort of threw himself into work and you had a, a totally different way of grieving. And it reminded me of um, being able to say, to say, I notice you blank, right? So I notice oh, so you good. are working a lot or I notice you, it seems that you want to talk about the miscarriage a lot or, you know, whatever it is that you're noticing. And then as a follow-up to that saying, the story I'm telling myself about that is blank. Oh, that's so good. Yes. Right? So, like, I notice you're working a ton. The story I'm telling myself about that is that, like, you're over this or you don't care or, like, you're not wanting to support me. Is that true? And just sort of, like, acknowledging what you're noticing but eliciting your partner's feedback, too, because the... The alternative is to just feel alone, Mm -hmm. right? To just feel like, well, he's working so much. Like, I'm just over here on my own. And then harboring resentment and feeling more detached and more isolated. Um, And so I like that tool for fostering communication. I think communication is key. That's that's really good. And that's a really tangible thing to be able to go and even use right after (laughs) this episode is over. And I think it also gives your partner the chance to start expressing themselves. It it opens up a way where you're not coming at them, attacking them. You're not blaming them. You're not accusing them. You are literally saying, this is the story that I'm telling myself. Is this right? Or am is there something else going on that I'm not understanding? I love that so much. Something else that I think is so important that's not really talked about just during the grief process as a whole is the part of grief that comes when you start feeling guilty and you start blaming yourself. And we kind of talked about it in the beginning, but when you go through pregnancy loss, at least for me, the guilt that came after that, the blame at which I blamed myself, my body, the decisions I made, I, I wanted so badly to be able to feel like I had control of a situation that was outside of my control. And in order to do that, I would then blame myself for things because guilt tells us 
that we are the ones at fault so that in the future, if we do something differently, it is safe for us. It will be safe for me to be pregnant again because I'm not going to make the same air quote because it's not true mistake or I'm going to fix this part of my body so that in the future it will be safe for me to be pregnant. We just blame ourselves so that we can feel safe. And when that guilt piece comes in and we're talking about intimacy and relationships, can you tell us a little bit more of how the impact of guilt and blame on ourselves, how that impacts intimacy in the aftermath of a miscarriage? Yeah, I can definitely relate to the blame game. And I think most people who've experienced pregnancy loss can do that. And you're exactly right. It gives a false sense of control, right? I remember thinking, oh, I must have miscarried because I went skiing, snow Mm. skiing, and I fell. And it's like, I know that that sounds silly, but it was really something I had to latch on to because then it's like, oh, there's a solution, right? I just won't go skiing next time and I'll be able to carry the pregnancy mm-hmm. when really that that's a false sense of control. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it almost feels soothing in a weird sort of mm-hmm. destructive way in the moment. And so blame is such a huge part of, of this. And, you know, blame and guilt can really cause a lot of emotional withdrawal and shame even. And shame is such an intense experience for emotionally, but also for our nervous system. Yes. And, you know, I think of like the deservingness piece, right? Like if I believe that my body is bad or I'm bad or I caused this and I experience shame, Again, I go back to like, how am I supposed to get into the space mentally and emotionally where I can give and receive pleasure? It's literally impossible. And it feels impossible. Impossible. Uh So then what do we do? We're we're in this we're in this moment where it truly feels impossible. What are steps? What are what are things that we can do for ourselves and then also with our partner that can help us just take little baby steps to a place where it might feel possible again to connect with our partner on an intimate level. Yeah, that's the good news is there there are things that we can do for sure. And so with building back up to intimacy, I think of, you know, engaging in non-sexual forms of intimacy. So giving hugs, cuddling, like being physically comforted with limits Mm. like in a way that feels really safe right knowing that this doesn't have to lead to like yes full-blown physical like sexual intercourse yes because that's huge because I found myself shutting down from even holding hands hugging any type of kissing any cuddling because of the fear even if it was subconscious that it was going to have to be something more when I really just wanted to be held and hugged, but I would rather have nothing than have to navigate through that. That felt so complicated to me. Yeah, yeah. It's like if if anything indicates that it's going that direction, it's overwhelming. Like there's no capacity for that. So I think having limits and setting limits with your partner as a way to almost like Build up your tolerance for pleasure again 
in really small, safe ways, right? So we're going to hold hands and it's not going to go any further than that. Or we're going to hug or we're going to cuddle on the couch for 10 minutes and that's it. And so letting your brain know and and even non-physical ways of experiencing pleasure, like looking at a sunset, right? Or eating an ice cream cone. Like a lot of times the pleasure center of your brain is so shut down and offline that you can't derive pleasure out of anything. And so being able to almost like build up that mental muscle again and let your system know that you can experience pleasure and it can be safe. And so building it up in small ways with your partner and and then debriefing, right? So how was that for you? Was that okay? Was it too much? And over time, we build our capacity for pleasure again. What's a good way to initiate even just what you're talking about with your partner? Is there a way that you approached your own partner or that you would say, here's a good approach to take for the women who are listening that are like, okay, that sounds really great. I want to do that. I want to create this boundary. I want to have this. I want to slowly get back into just feeling safe, just just hugging. But I don't know how to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. How can that conversation be started? So my thought about that is to communicate the ultimate goal, right? And maybe acknowledging like, hey, I know sex is an important part of our relationship and I want to work up to a place where that feels safe again. And so we sort of share a common goal in that, right? Like we're on the same team. And so in order to be able to work back up to that, I need to take small steps and it needs to be done safely and I need your help. And so here's my idea about how we could do that together and just being really vulnerable um, but expressing that like I want the same thing as you it's just hard for me and here's how I think it could be possible this this is so good I wish I had this conversation with you three years ago and even just what I know now I wish I would have known three years ago right it's like in hindsight but even when you're in it yourself being able to navigate what foot comes forward next? What step do I take next when the end goal seems so far away? And right now we're not we're not hitting a home run right now, right? Like right. we are taking actionable steps that we feel safe taking because what we know about trauma is it makes us feel very unsafe existing in the world. And specifically with miscarriage, for a lot of us, it makes us feel very unsafe just even existing in ourselves. And so being able to have this conversation with your partner where you share this common goal, you make steps to get there and you can feel like you're on the same team. That is how you can communicate through it, which communication is how we're going to get through this hard stuff together. And in my head, I'm also thinking, and if you really want to start it and you're like, I still am unsure, uncomfortable, I'm nervous, send them this podcast episode. Yes. (laughs) I listened to this podcast episode today and it really captured how I'm feeling. Can you listen to it? And then we can talk about it when you get home. (laughs) Just throw that out there. Also, something else that I wanted to talk about, and maybe this is a good ending point, but timelines of grief on partners are very different. 
the time that you need can look very different from what your partner needs. How do you navigate through timelines and expectations and even the expectation that you feel that you put on yourself because you're putting pressure on yourself to show up a certain way for your partner, but you're not ready to do that? How can partners navigate the differences in grieving styles or timelines when it comes to intimacy? I think of self-compassion first because you already likely feel like such a failure. Mm -hmm. And so the last thing you need is to feel like more of a failure because you can't meet your partner's needs in whatever way. And so having some self-compassion for, again, it's not about like you can't do this because there's something wrong or inadequate about you. It's like, no, this is exactly what we expect to happen in the midst of trauma is a dissociation, a detachment. It's a protective thing that happens so that you can spend all of your mental resources, all of your brain power on just reestablishing safety. It's like your brain has to recalibrate itself and find safety again first because safety has to be sort of like a prerequisite to joy and fun and pleasure. And so having self-compassion, knowing that if you feel like you can't do it, it's because your brain's responding exactly how we would expect it to given what you've been through. So having some compassion for yourself, also having some compassion for your partner, um, acknowledging that timelines are different. No two people are gonna grieve the same and they're very different experiences. And so having some self-compassion, communicating, and going to therapy. <laughs> and going to therapy. I say that every single episode. I'm like, here's all the tools that you can take home with you and go to therapy. <laughs> because to have someone that you can talk things through with in person, be given those tools who can check in on you, who can help you uncover more things that may be can be viewed from the outside that just when you're in it is really difficult to grasp or even understand is so helpful. And going together with your partner together and individually. Again, we talked about this in episode three when we talked about grieving with your spouse. So go back and listen to that if you haven't yet. But Jamie, this conversation, first of all, thank you so much for being vulnerable and having it with me because I know, especially when you have a personal story with it, experience in it. And it still doesn't even make sense in my brain because of that. It feels clunky to talk about. <laughs> yeah. But that's part of the healing process. That's part of why these conversations are so powerful is because when you're doing it raw and real, I think we're able to talk about things in a way that so many other people can relate to. And I know that you have just given so much language and tools that people can walk away from this conversation with. So thank you so much for having this conversation here in my car uh, <laughs> with me. For anyone who's listening right now who is in the acute just stage of the messiness and the loneliness of everything that we've talked about today, is there one thing that you want to leave with them to say to them if they were sitting in the car with us right now? The first thing that comes to mind is that this is a club that nobody mm. ever wanted to be in. And 
at the same time, if you're in it, I'm sorry that you're in it and you're not alone and it's not your fault. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. It's so fun to talk about this, even though it's a really heavy and deep subject. Um, it's a really important conversation. And I, too, wish I had more resources when I was in the thick of it because it's so tough to navigate alone. Thank you for what you do on your platform. You guys, I'm going to link Jamie's site, her book, and her Instagram page below so that you can go find her and find your Shine Therapy because they share so many great resources online to help put language to these feelings and and tools to help you move forward. I'm proud of you for doing this hard work. I know that it's not easy. That's why we're here. It's because it's not easy, but I also know that it's also not easy to not know how to move forward. And it's and it's really hard to feel like you're just stuck not knowing what to do. And so I'm proud of you for making the hard choice to figure it out. Thanks for joining us this week. And until I see you again next week, take good care of yourself. I'm so honored you joined us for this episode of the Healing Her podcast, where healing isn't just a destination. It's an empowering, transformative adventure. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss brand new episodes each Tuesday. And if you're ready for more tangible tools, make sure you grab my best-selling book, I Am Here, wherever books are sold or in the link in the show notes below. Take good care of yourself until I see you again next week. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.